I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A brave new world. Or was it the long way home for these men? And a hideous nightmare seemed the culture of Williamson's world to men who knew nothing of beauty. Survey Team and Souvenir by Philip K. Dick. That's next on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode. We're seeing phenomenal growth all over the world And we cannot thank you enough for your support. The Lost Sci-Fi Podcast is being heard in more than 100 countries around the world. To say thank you, we've got a special announcement that will be made when we go live on YouTube Thursday night at 8 p.m. in New York. We'll answer your questions and let you know what stories are already narrated and on the way and some of those we are working on for future episodes. Let's kick off our double dose of Philip K. Dick with a story from the May 1954 issue of Fantastic Universe magazine. Our story can be found on page 84, Survey Team, by Philip K. Dick. Halloway came up through six miles of ash to see how the rocket looked in landing. He emerged from the lead-shielded bore and joined Young, crouching down with a small knot of surface troops. The surface of the planet was dark and silent. The air stung his nose. It smelled foul. Halloway shivered uneasily. Where the hell are we? A soldier pointed into the blackness. The mountains are over there. See them? The Rockies. This is Colorado. Colorado. The old name awakened vague emotion in Halloway. He fingered his blast rifle. When will it get here? he asked. Far off against the horizon, he could see the enemy's green and yellow signal flares and an occasional flash of fish in white. Any time now, it's mechanically controlled all the way piloted by a robot. When it comes, it really comes. An enemy mine burst a few dozen miles away. For a brief instant, the landscape was outlined in jagged lightning. Halloway and the troops dropped to the ground automatically. He caught the dead, burned smell of the surface of Earth as it was now, thirty years after the war began. It was a lot different from the way he remembered it when he was a kid in California. He could remember the valley country, grape orchards and walnuts and lemons, smudge pots under the orange trees, green mountains and sky the color of a woman's eyes, and the fresh smell of the soil. That was all gone now. Nothing remained but gray ash pulverized with the white stones of buildings. Once a city had been in this spot. He could see the yawning cavities of cellars, filled now with slag, dried rivers of rust that had once been buildings. Rubble strewn everywhere, aimlessly. The mine flare faded out and the blackness settled back. They got cautiously to their feet. Quiet aside, the soldier murmured. It was a lot different before, Halloway said. Was it? I was born under surface. In those days, we grew our food right in the ground, on the surface, in the soil, not in underground tanks. We... Halloway broke off. A great rushing sound filled the air suddenly, cutting off his words. An immense shape roared past them in the blackness, 
struck someplace close and shaking the earth. The rocket, the soldiers shouted. They all began running, Halloway lumbering awkwardly along. Good news, I hope, Young said close by him. I hope too, Halloway gasped. Mars is our last chance. If this doesn't work, we're finished. The report on Venus was negative. Nothing there but lava and steam. Later, they examined the rocket from Mars. It'll do, Young murmured. You're sure? Director Davidson asked tensely. Once we get there, we can't come running back. We're sure. Halloway tossed the spools across the desk to Davidson. Examine them yourself. The air on Mars will be thin and dry. The gravity is much weaker than ours, but we'll be able to live there, which is more than you can say for this godforsaken Earth. Davidson picked up the spools. The unblinking, recessed lights gleamed down on the metal desk, the metal walls, and floor of the office. Hidden machinery wheezed in the walls, maintaining the air and temperature. I'll have to rely on you experts, of course. If some vital factor is not taken into account, naturally it's a gamble, Young said. We can't be sure of all factors at this distance. He tapped the spools. Mechanical samples and photos, robots creeping around, doing the best they can. We're lucky to have anything to go on. There's no radiation, at least, Halloway said. We can count on that. But Mars will be dry and dusty and cold. It's a long way out. Weak sun, deserts and wrinkled hills. Mars is old, Young agreed. It was cooled a long time ago. Look at it this way. We have eight planets, excluding Earth. Pluto to Jupiter is out. No chance of survival there. Mercury is nothing but liquid metal. Venus is still volcano and steam, pre-Cambrian. That's seven of the eight. Mars is the only possibility, a priori. In other words, Davidson said slowly, Mars has to be okay, because there's nothing else for us to try. We could stay here, live on here in the undersurface systems like gophers. We could not last more than another year. You've seen the recent sight graphs. They had. The tension index was up. Men weren't made to live in metal tunnels, living on tank-grown food, working and sleeping and dying without seeing the sun. It was the children they were really thinking about. Kids that had never been up to the surface. Wan-faced pseudo-mutants with eyes like blind fish. A generation born in the subterranean world. The tension index was up because men were seeing their children alter and meld in with a world of tunnels and slimy darkness and dripping luminous rocks. Then it's agreed, Young said. Davidson searched the faces of the two technicians. Maybe we could reclaim the surface, revive Earth again, renew its soil. It hasn't really gone that far, has it? No chance, Young said flatly. Even if we could work an arrangement with the enemy, there'll be particles in suspension for another fifty years. Earth'll be too hot for life the rest of this century, and we can't wait. All right, Davidson said. I'll authorize the survey team. We'll risk that, at least. You want to go? Be the first humans to land on Mars? You bet, Halloway said grimly. It's in our contract that I go. The red globe that was Mars grew steadily larger. In the control room, Young and Van Ecker, the navigator, watched it intently. We'll have to bail, Van Ecker said. No chance of landing at this velocity. Young was nervous. That's all right for us, but how about the first load of settlers? We can't expect women and children to jump. By then, we'll know more. Van Ecker nodded, and Captain Mason sounded the emergency alarm. Throughout the ship, relay bells clanged ominously. The ship throbbed with scampering feet as crew members grabbed their jumpsuits and hurried to the hatches. Mars, Captain Mason murmured, still at the viewscreen. Not like Luna. This is the real thing. Young and Halloway moved toward the hatch. We better get going. Mars was swelling rapidly. An ugly, bleak globe, dull red. 
Halloway fitted on his jump helmet. Van Ecker came behind him. Mason remained in the control cabin. I'll follow, he said, after the crew's out. The hatch slid back and they moved out onto the jump shelf. The crew were already beginning to leap. Too bad to waste a ship, Young said. Can't be helped. Van Ecker clamped his helmet on and jumped. His brake units sent him spinning upward, rising like a balloon into the blackness above them. Young and Halloway followed. Below them, the ship plunged on, downward toward the surface of Mars. In the sky, tiny luminous dots drifted. The crew members. I've been thinking, Halloway said into his helmet speaker. What about? Young's voice came in his earphones. Davidson was talking about overlooking some vital factor. There is one we haven't considered. What's that? The Martians. Good God, Van Ecker chimed in. Halloway could see him drifting off to his right, settling slowly toward the planet below. You think there are Martians? It's possible. Mars will sustain life. If we can live there, other complex forms could exist, too. We'll know soon enough, Young said. Van Ecker laughed. Maybe they trapped one of our robot rockets. Maybe they're expecting us. Halloway was silent. It was too close to be funny. The red planet was growing rapidly. He could see white spots at the poles. A few hazy blue-green ribbons that had once been called canals. Was there a civilization down there? An organized culture waiting for them as they drifted slowly down? He groped at his pack until his fingers closed over the butt of his pistol. Better get your guns out, he said. If there's a Martian defense system waiting for us, we won't have a chance, Young said. Mars cooled millions of years ahead of Earth. It's a cinch they'll be so advanced we won't even be... Too late now. Mason's voice came faintly. You experts should have thought of that before. Where are you? Halloway demanded. Drifting below you. The ship is empty. Should strike any moment. I got all the equipment out, attached it to automatic jump units. A faint flash of light exploded briefly below, winked out. The ship, striking the surface. I'm almost down, Mason said nervously. I'll be the first. Mars had ceased to be a globe. Now it was a great red dish. A vast plain of dull rust spread out beneath them. They fell slowly, silently toward it. Mountains became visible, narrow trickles of water that were rivers. A vague checkerboard pattern that might have been fields and pastures. Halloway gripped his pistol tightly. His brake units shrieked as the air thickened. He was almost down. A muffled crunch sounded abruptly in his earphones. Mason? Young shouted. I'm down, Mason's voice came faintly. You all right? Knock the wind out of me, but I'm all right. How does it look? Halloway demanded. For a moment, there was silence. Then, good God, Mason gasped. A city! A city? Young yelled. What kind? What's it like? Can you see them? Van Ecker shouted. What are they like? Are there a lot of them? They could hear Mason breathing. His breath rasped hoarsely in their phones. No, he gasped at last. No sign of life. No activity. The city is... It looks deserted. Deserted? Ruins. Nothing but ruins. Miles of wrecked columns and walls and rusting scaffolding. Thank God, Young breathed. They must have died out. We're safe. They must have evolved and finished their cycle a long time ago. Did they leave us anything? Fear clutched at Halloway. Is there anything left for us? He clawed wildly at his brake units, struggling frantically to hurry his descent. Is it all gone? You think they used up everything? Young said. You think they exhausted all the... I can't tell, Mason's weak voice came, tinged with uneasiness. It looks bad. Big pits, mining pits, 
I can't tell, but it looks bad. Halloway struggled desperately with his brake units. The planet was a shambles. Good God, Young mumbled. He sat down on a broken column and wiped his face. Not a damn thing left. Nothing. Around them, the crew were setting up huts and emergency defense units. The communications team was assembling a battery-driven transmitter. A bore team was drilling for water. Other teams were scouting around looking for food. There won't be any signs of life, Halloway said. He waved at the endless expanse of debris and rust. They're gone, finished a long time ago. I don't understand, Mason muttered. How could they wreck a whole planet? We wrecked Earth in thirty years. Not this way. They've used Mars up. Used up everything. Nothing left. Nothing at all. It's one vast scrap heap. Shakily, Halloway tried to light a cigarette. The match burned feebly, then sputtered out. He felt light and dopey. His heart throbbed heavily. The distant sun beat down, pale and small. Mars was cold, a lonely, dead world. Halloway said they must have had a hell of a time watching their cities rot away. No water or minerals. Finally, no soil. He picked up a handful of dry sand, let it trickle through his fingers. Transmitter working, a crew member said. Mason got to his feet and lumbered awkwardly over to the transmitter. I'll tell Davidson what we found. He bent over the microphone. Young looked across at Halloway. Well, I guess we're stuck. How long will our supplies carry us? Couple of months. And then Young snapped his fingers. Like the Martians. He squinted at the long corroded wall of a ruined house. I wonder what they were like. A semantics team is probing the ruins. Maybe they'll turn up something. Beyond the ruined city stretched out what had once been an industrial area. Fields of twisted installations, towers and pipes and machinery. Sand-covered and partly rusted. The surface of the land was pocked with great gaping sores. Yawning pits where scoops had once dredged. Entrances of underground mines. Mars was honeycombed, termite-ridden. A whole race had burrowed and dug in, trying to stay alive. The Martians had sucked Mars dry, then fled it. A graveyard, Young said. Well, they got what they deserved. You blame them? What should they have done? Perished a few thousand years sooner and left their planet in better shape? They could have left us something, Young said stubbornly. Maybe we can dig up their bones and boil them. I'd like to get my hands on one of them long enough to... A pair of crewmen came hurrying across the sand. Look at these! They carried armloads of metal tubes, glittering cylinders heaped up in piles. Look what we found buried! Halloway roused himself. What is it? Records! Written documents! Get these to the semantics team. Carmichael spilled his armload at Halloway's feet. And this isn't all. We found something else. Installations. Installations? What kind? Rocket launchers, old towers, rusty as hell. There are fields of them on the other side of the town. Carmichael wiped perspiration from his red face. They didn't die, Halloway. They took off. They used up this place, then left. Dr. Judd and Young poured over the gleaming tubes. It's coming, Judd murmured, absorbed in the shifting pattern undulating across the scanner. Can you make anything out? Halloway asked tensely. They left, all right. Took off, the whole lot of them. Young turned to Halloway. What do you think of that? So they didn't die out. Can you tell where they went? Judd shook his head. Some planet their scout ships located. Ideal climate and temperature. He pushed the scanner aside. In their last period, the whole Martian civilization was oriented around this escape planet. Big project, 
Moving a society lock, stock, and barrel, it took them three or four hundred years to get everything of value off Mars and on its way to the other planet. How did the operation come out? Not so good. The planet was beautiful, but they had to adapt. Apparently, they didn't anticipate all the problems arising from colonization on a strange planet. Judd indicated a cylinder. The colonies deteriorated rapidly. Couldn't keep the traditions and techniques going. The society broke apart. Then came war. Barbarism. Then their migration was a failure, Halloway pondered. Maybe it can't be done. Maybe it's impossible. Not a failure, Judd corrected. They lived, at least. This place was no good anymore. Better to live as savages on a strange world than stay here and die. So they say on the cylinders. Come along, Young said to Halloway. The two men stepped outside the semantics hut. It was night. The sky was littered with glowing stars. The two moons had risen. They glimmered coldly. Two dead eyes in the chilly sky. This place won't do, Young stated. We can't migrate here. That's settled. Halloway eyed him. What's on your mind? This was the last of the nine planets. We tested every one of them. Young's face was alive with emotion. None of them will support life. All of them are lethal or useless, like this rubbish heap. The whole damn solar system is out. So we'll have to leave the solar system. And go where? How? Young pointed toward the Martian ruins, to the city and the rusted, bent rows of towers. Where they went? They found a place to go. An untouched world outside the solar system and they developed some kind of outer space drive to get them there. You mean, follow them. This solar system is dead. But outside, someplace in some other system, they found an escape world, and they were able to get there. We'd have to fight with them if we land on their planet. They won't want to share it. Young spat angrily on the sand. Their colonies deteriorated, remember? Broke down into barbarism. We can handle them. We've got everything in the way of war weapons. Weapons that can wipe a planet clean. We don't want to do that. What do we want to do? Tell Davidson we're stuck on Terra? Let the human race turn into underground moles? Blind, crawling things? If we follow the Martians, we'll be competing for their world. They found it. The damn thing belongs to them, not us. And maybe we can't work out their drive. Maybe the schematics are lost. Judd emerged from the semantics hut. I've some more information. The whole story is here. Details on the escape planet. Fauna and flora. Studies of its gravity, air density, mineral possession, soil layer, climate, temperature, everything. How about their drive? Break down on that, too. Everything. Judd was shaking with excitement. I have an idea. Let's get the designs team on these drive schematics and see if they can duplicate it. If they can, we could follow the Martians. We could sort of share their planet with them. See? Young said to Halloway. Davidson will say the same thing. It's obvious. Halloway turned and walked off. What's wrong with him? Judd asked. Nothing. He'll get over it. Young scratched out a quick message on a piece of paper. Have this transmitted to Davidson back on Terra. Judd peered at the message. He whistled. You're telling him about the Martian migration. And about the escape planet? We want to get started. It'll take a long time to get things underway. Will Halloway come around? He'll come around, Young said. Don't worry about him. Halloway gazed up at the towers the leaning, sagging towers from which the Martian transports had been launched thousands of years before. Nothing stirred, no sign of life. The whole dried-up planet was dead. Halloway wandered among the towers. The beam from his helmet cut a white path in front of him. Ruins, heaps of rusting metal. 
bales of wire and building material, parts of uncompleted equipment, half-buried construction sections sticking up from the sand. He came to a raised platform and mounted the ladder cautiously. He found himself in an observation mount, surrounded by the remains of dials and meters. A telescopic sight stuck up, rusted in place, frozen tight. Hey, a voice came from below. Who's up there? Halloway. God, you scared me. Carmichael slid his blast rifle away and climbed the ladder. What you doing? Looking around, Carmichael appeared beside him, puffing and red-faced. Interesting, these towers. This was an automatic sighting station. Fixed the takeoff for supply transports. The population was already gone. Carmichael slapped at the ruined control board. These supply ships continued to take off, loaded by machines and dispatched by machines after all the Martians were gone. Lucky for them, they had a place to go. Sure was. The minerals team says there's not a damn thing left here. Nothing but dead sand and rock and debris. Even the water's no good. They took everything of value. Judd says their escape world is pretty nice. Virgin. Carmichael smacked his fat lips. Never touched. Trees and meadows and blue oceans. He showed me a scanner translation of a cylinder. Too bad we don't have a place like that to go. A virgin world for ourselves. Carmichael was bent over the telescope. This here sighted for them. When the escape planet swam into view, a relay delivered a trigger charge to the control tower. The tower launched the ships. When the ships were gone, a new flock came up into position. Carmichael began to polish the encrusted lenses of the telescope wiping the accumulated rust and debris away. Maybe we'll see their planet. In the ancient lenses, a vague luminous globe was swimming. Halloway could make it out, obscured by the filth of centuries, hidden behind a curtain of metallic particles and dirt. Carmichael was down on his hands and knees, working with the focus mechanism. See anything? he demanded. Halloway nodded. Yeah. Carmichael pushed him away. Let me look. He squinted into the lens. Oh, for God's sake. What's wrong? Can't you see it? I see it, Carmichael said, getting down on his hands and knees again. The thing must have slipped, or the time shift is too great. But this is supposed to adjust automatically. Of course, the gearbox has been frozen for... What's wrong? Halloway demanded. That's Earth. Don't you recognize it? Earth? Carmichael sneered with disgust. This fool thing must be busted. I wanted to get a look at their dream planet. That's just old Terra, where we came from. All my work trying to fix this wreck up, and what do we see? Earth, Halloway murmured. He had just finished telling Young about the telescope. I can't believe it, Young said but the description fitted Earth thousands of years ago. How long ago did they take off? Halloway asked. About 600,000 years ago, Judd said, and their colonies descended into barbarism on the new planet. The four men were silent. They looked at each other, tight-lipped. We've destroyed two worlds, Halloway said at last. Not one. Mars first. We finished up here, then we moved to Terra, and we destroyed Terra as systematically as we did Mars. A close circle, Mason said. We're back where we started, back to reap the crop our ancestors sowed. They left Mars this way, useless, and now we're back here poking around the ruins like ghouls. Shut up, Young snapped. He paced angrily back and forth. I can't believe it. We're Martians, descendants of the original stock that left here. We're back from the colonies. Back home. Mason's voice rose hysterically. We're home again, where we belong. Judd pushed aside the scanner and got to his feet. No doubt about it. I checked their analysis with our own archaeological records. It fits. Their escape world was terror 
600,000 years ago. What'll we tell Davidson? Mason demanded. He giggled wildly. We found a perfect place, a world untouched by human hands, still in the original cellophane wrapper. Halloway moved to the door of the hut, stood gazing silently out. Judd joined him. This is catastrophic. We're really stuck. What the hell are you looking at? Above them, the cold sky glittered. In the bleak light, the barren plains of Mars stretched out, mile after mile of empty, wasted ruin. At that, Halloway said, you know what it reminds me of? A picnic site. Broken bottles and tin cans and wadded-up plates. After the picnickers have left, only the picnickers are back. They're back, and they have to live in the mess they made. What'll we tell Davidson? Mason demanded. I've already called him, Young said wearily. I told him there was a planet out of the system, some place we could go. The Martians had a drive. A drive? Judd pondered. Those towers? His lips twisted. Maybe they did have an outer space drive. Maybe it's worth going on with the translation. They looked at each other. Tell Davidson we're going on, Halloway ordered. We'll keep on until we find it. We're not staying on this godforsaken junkyard. His gray eyes glowed. We'll find it yet. A virgin world. A world that's unspoiled. Unspoiled, Young echoed. Nobody there ahead of us. We'll be the first, Judd muttered avidly. It's wrong, Mason shouted. Two are enough. Let's not destroy a third world. Nobody listened to him. Judd and Young and Halloway gazed up, faces eager, hands clenching and unclenching, as if they were already there, as if they were already holding onto the new world clutching it with all their strength, tearing it apart, atom by atom. That's Survey Team. Our second story was printed in the pages of Fantastic Universe magazine five months after our previous story. The magazine had this to say about the now legendary author. Philip Dick's characters have an exciting way of letting their logically motivated self-interest lead them straight down the flaming road to ruin. We suspect that it is this distinctly individual approach which has made him one of the most admired and widely read science fiction writers of the past few years. Let's turn to page 41 for Souvenir by Philip K. Dick. Here we go, sir, the robot pilot said. The words startled Rogers and made him look up sharply. He tensed his body and adjusted the trace web inside his coat as the bubble ship started dropping, swiftly and silently, toward the planet's surface. This, his heart caught, was Williamson's world, the legendary lost planet found after three centuries, by accident, of course. This blue and green planet, the holy grail of the galactic system, had been almost miraculously discovered by a routine charting mission. Frank Williamson had been the first Terran to develop an outer space drive, the first to hop off from the solar system toward the universe beyond. He had never come back. He, his world, his colony, had never been found. There had been endless rumors, false leads, fake legends, and nothing more. I'm receiving field clearance. The robot pilot raised the gain on the control speaker and clicked to attention. Field ready, came a ghostly voice from below. Remember, your drive mechanism is unfamiliar to us. How much run is required? Emergency brake walls are up. Rogers smiled. He could hear the pilot telling them that no run would be required. Not with this ship. The brake walls could be lowered with perfect safety. Three hundred years. It had taken a long time to find Williamson's world. 
Many authorities had given up. Some believed he had never landed, had died out in space. Perhaps there was no Williamson's world. Certainly there had been no real clues, nothing tangible to go on. Frank Williamson and three families had utterly disappeared in the trackless void, never to be heard from again. Until now. The young man met him at the field. He was thin and red-haired, dressed in a colorful suit of bright material. You're from the Galactic Relay Center? he asked. That's right, Rogers said huskily. I'm Edward Rogers. The young man held out his hand. Rogers shook it awkwardly. My name is Williamson, the young man said. Gene Williamson. The name thundered in Rogers' ears. Are you? The young man nodded, his gaze enigmatical. I'm his great-great-great-great-grandson. His tomb is here. You may see it if you wish. I almost expected to see him. He's, well almost a god figure to us, the first man to break out of the solar system. He means a lot to us, too, the young man said. He brought us here. They searched a long time before they found a planet that was habitable. Williamson waved at the city stretched out beyond the field. This one proved satisfactory. It's the system's tenth planet. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Roger's eyes began to shine. Williamson's world. Under his feet. He stamped hard as they walked down the ramp together, away from the field. How many men in the galaxy had dreamed of striding down a landing ramp onto Williamson's world? with a young descendant of Frank Williamson beside them. They'll all want to come here, Roger said, as if aware of his thoughts. Throw rubbish around and break off the flowers. Pick up handfuls of dirt to take back. He laughed a little nervously. The relay will control them, of course. Of course, Rogers assured him. At the ramp end, Rogers stopped short. For the first time, he saw the city. What's wrong? Gene Williamson asked, with a faint trace of amusement. They had been cut off, of course, isolated, so perhaps it wasn't so surprising. It was a wonder they weren't living in caves, eating raw meat. But Williamson had always symbolized progress, development. He had been a man ahead of other men. True, his space drive by modern standards had been primitive, a curiosity. But the concept remained unaltered. Williamson, the pioneer and inventor, the man who built. Yet the city was nothing more than a village with a few dozen houses and some public buildings and industrial units at its perimeter. Beyond the city stretched green fields, hills, and broad prairies. Surface vehicles crawled leisurely along the narrow streets, and most of the citizens walked on foot. An incredible anachronism, it seemed, dragged up from the past. I'm accustomed to the uniform galactic culture, Roger said. Relay keeps the technocratic and ideological level constant throughout. It's hard to adjust to such a radically different social stage. But you've been cut off. Cut off? asked Williamson. From Relay, you've had to develop without help. In front of them, a surface vehicle crept to a halt. 
The driver opened the doors manually. Now that I recall these factors, I can adjust, Rogers assured him. On the contrary, Williamson said, entering the vehicle. We've been receiving your relay coordinates for over a century. He motioned Rogers to get in beside him. Rogers was puzzled. I don't understand. You mean you hooked onto the web and yet made no attempt to... We receive your coordinates, Gene Williamson said, but our citizens are not interested in using them. The surface vehicle hurried along the highway, past the rim of an immense red hill. Soon the city lay behind them, a faintly glowing plate reflecting the rays of the setting sun. Bushes and plants appeared along the highway. The sheer side of the cliff rose, a towering wall of deep red sandstone, ragged, untouched. Nice evening, Williamson said. Rogers nodded in disturbed agreement. Williamson rolled down the window. Cool air blew into the car. A few gnat-like insects followed. Far off, two tiny figures were plowing a field, a man and a huge lumbering beast. When will we be there? Rogers asked. Soon. Most of us live away from the cities. We live in the country, in isolated, self-sufficient farm units. They're modeled on the manners of the Middle Ages. Then you maintain only the most rudimentary subsistence level? How many people live on each farm? Perhaps a hundred men and women. A hundred people can't manage anything more complex than weaving and dyeing and paper pressing. We have special industrial units, manufacturing systems. This vehicle is a good example of what we can turn out. We have communication and sewage and medical agencies. We have technological advantages equal to Terra's. Terra of the 21st century, Rogers protested. But that was 300 years ago. You're purposely maintaining an archaic culture in the face of the relay coordinates. It doesn't make sense. Maybe we prefer it. But you're not free to prefer an inferior cultural stage. Every culture has to keep pace with the general trend. Relay makes actual a uniformity of development. It integrates the valid factors and rejects the rest. They were approaching the farm, Gene Williamson's Manor. It consisted of a few simple buildings clustered together in a valley to the side of the highway, surrounded by fields and pastures. The surface vehicle turned down a narrow side road and spiraled cautiously toward the floor of the valley. The air became darker. Cold wind blew into the car, and the driver clicked his headlights on. No robots? Rogers asked. No, Williamson replied. We do all our own work. You're making a purely arbitrary distinction, Rogers pointed out. A robot is a machine. You don't dispense with machines as such. This car is a machine. True, Williamson acknowledged. The machine is a development of the tool, Rogers went on. The axe is a simple machine. A stick becomes a tool, a simple machine in the hands of a man reaching for something. A machine is merely a multi-element tool that increases the power ratio. Man is the tool-making animal. The history of man is the history of tools into machines greater and more efficient functioning elements. If you reject machinery, you reject man's essential key. Here we are, Williamson said. The vehicle came to a halt, and the driver opened the doors for them. Three or four huge wooden buildings loomed up in the darkness. A few dim shapes moved around, human shapes. Dinner's ready, Williamson said, sniffing. I can smell it. They entered the main building. Several men and women were sitting at a long, rough table. Plates and dishes had been set in front of them. They were waiting for Williamson. This is Edward Rogers, Williamson announced. The people studied Rogers curiously, then turned back to their food. Sit down, a dark-eyed girl urged. By me. They made a place for him near the end of the table. Rogers started forward. But Williamson restrained him. Not there. You're my guest. You're expected to sit with me. The girl and her companions laughed. Rogers sat down awkwardly by Williamson. The bench was rough and hard under him. He examined a handmade wooden drinking cup 
The food was piled in huge wooden bowls. There was a stew and a salad and great loaves of bread. We could be back in the 14th century, Roger said. Yes, Williamson agreed. Manor life goes back to Roman times and to the classical world, the Gauls, Britons. These people here, are they? Williamson nodded. My family, we're divided up into small units arranged according to the traditional patriarch basis. I am the oldest male and titular head. The people were eating rapidly, intent on their food. Boiled meat, vegetables, scooped up with hunks of bread and butter and washed down with milk. The room was lit by fluorescent lighting. Incredible, Rogers murmured. You're still using electric power. Oh, yes. There are plenty of waterfalls on this planet. The vehicle was electric. It was run by a storage battery. Why are there no older men? Rogers saw several dried-up old women, but Williamson was the oldest man. And he couldn't have been over thirty. The fighting, Williamson replied, with an expressive gesture. Fighting? Clan wars between families are a major part of our culture. Williamson nodded toward the long table. We don't live long. Rogers was stunned. Clan wars? But we have pennants and emblems, like the old Scottish tribes. He touched a bright ribbon on his sleeve, the representation of a bird. There are emblems and colors for each family, and we fight over them. The Williamson family no longer controls this planet. There is no central agency now. For a major issue, we have the plebiscite, a vote by all of the clans. Each family on the planet has a vote, like the American Indians. Williamson nodded. It's a tribal system. In time, we'll be distinct tribes, I suppose. We still retain a common language, but we're breaking up, decentralizing, and each family to its own ways, its own customs and manners. Just what do you fight for? Williamson shrugged. Some real things, like land and women. Some imaginary. Prestige, for instance. When honor is at stake, we have an official semi-annual public battle. A man from each family takes part. The best warrior and his weapons. Like the medieval joust. We've drawn from all traditions. Human tradition as a whole. Does each family have its separate deity? Williamson laughed. No, we worship in common a vague animism, a sense of the general positive vitality of the universal process. He held up a loaf of bread. Thanks for all this, which you grew yourselves, on a planet provided for us. Williamson ate his bread thoughtfully. The old records say the ship was almost finished, fuel just about gone, one dead, arid waste after another. If this planet hadn't turned up, the whole expedition would have perished. Cigar, Williamson said, when the empty bowls had been pushed back. Thanks. Rogers accepted a cigar noncommittally. Williamson lit his own and settled back against the wall. How long are you staying? he asked presently. Not long, Rogers answered. There's a bed fixed up for you, Williamson said. We retire early, but there'll be some kind of dancing, also singing and dramatic acts. We devote a lot of time to staging and producing drama. You place an emphasis on psychological release? We enjoy making and doing things, if that's what you mean. Rogers stared about him. The walls were covered with murals painted directly on the rough wood. So I see, he said. You grind your own colors from clay and berries? Not quite, Williamson replied. We have a big pigment industry. Tomorrow I'll show you our kiln where we fire our own things. Some of our best work is with fabrics and screen processes. Interesting. A decentralized society, moving gradually back into primitive tribalism. A society that voluntarily rejects the advanced technocratic and cultural products of the galaxy and thus deliberately withdraws from contact with the rest of mankind. From the uniform relay-controlled society only, Williamson insisted. Do you know why relay maintains a uniform level for all worlds? Rogers asked. I'll tell you. 
There are two reasons. First, the body of knowledge which men have amassed doesn't permit duplication of experiment. There's no time. When a discovery has been made, it's absurd to repeat it on countless planets throughout the universe. Information gained on any of the thousand worlds is flashed to Relay Center and then out again to the whole galaxy. Relay studies and selects experiences and coordinates them into a rational, functional system without contradictions. Relay orders the total experience of mankind into a coherent structure. And the second reason? If uniform culture is maintained, controlled from a central source, there won't be war. True, Williamson admitted, we've abolished war. It's as simple as that. We have a homogeneous culture like that of ancient Rome, a common culture for all mankind, which we maintain throughout the galaxy. Each planet is as involved in it as any other. There are no backwaters of culture to breed envy and hatred, such as this. Rogers let out his breath slowly. Yes, you've confronted us with a strange situation. We've searched for Williamson's world for three centuries. We've wanted it, dreamed of finding it. It has seemed like Prester John's empire, a fabulous world cut off from the rest of humanity. Maybe not real at all. Frank Williamson might have crashed, but he didn't. He didn't. And Williamson's world is alive with a culture of its own, deliberately set apart with its own way of life, its own standards. Now contact has been made, and our dream has come true. The people of the galaxy will soon be informed that Williamson's world has been found. We can now restore the first colony outside the solar system to its rightful place in the galactic culture. Rogers reached into his coat and brought out a metal packet. He unfastened the packet and laid a clean, crisp document on the table. What's this? Williamson asked. The Articles of Incorporation. For you to sign, so that Williamson's world can become a part of the galactic culture. Williamson and the rest of the people in the room fell silent. They gazed down at the document, none of them speaking. Well, Roger said. He was tense. He pushed the document toward Williamson. Here it is. Williamson shook his head. Sorry. He pushed the document firmly back toward Rogers. We've already taken a plebiscite. I hate to disappoint you, but we've already decided not to join. That's our final decision. The Class I battleship assumed an orbit outside the gravity belt of Williamson's world. Commander Ferris contacted the relay center. We're here. What's next? Send down a wiring team. Report back to me as soon as it has made surface contact. Ten minutes later, Corporal Pete Matson was dropped overboard in a pressurized gravity suit. He drifted slowly toward the blue and green globe beneath, turning and twisting as he neared the surface of the planet. Matson landed and bounced a couple of times. He got shakily to his feet. He seemed to be at the edge of a forest. In the shadow of the huge trees, he removed his crash helmet. Holding his blast rifle tightly, he made his way forward, cautiously advancing among the trees. His earphones clicked. Any sign of activity? None, Commander, he signaled back. There's what appears to be a village to your right. You may run into someone. Keep moving and watch out. The rest of the team is dropping now. Instructions will follow from your relay web. I'll watch out, Matson promised, cradling his blast rifle. He sighted it experimentally at a distant hill and squeezed the trigger. The hill disintegrated into dust a rising column of waste particles. Matson climbed a long ridge and shielded his eyes to peer around him. He could see the village. It was small, like a country town on Terra. It looked interesting. For a moment, he hesitated. Then he stepped quickly down from the ridge and headed toward the village, moving rapidly, his supple body alert. Above him, from the Class I battleship, Three more of the team were already falling, clutching their guns and tumbling gently toward the surface of the planet.
Rogers folded up the incorporation papers and returned them slowly to his coat. You understand what you're doing? he asked. The room was deathly silent. Williamson nodded. Of course. We're refusing to join your relay system. Rogers' fingers touched the trace web. The web warmed into life. I'm sorry to hear that, he said. Does it surprise you? Not exactly. Relay submitted our scouts report to the computers. There was always the possibility you'd refuse. I was given instructions in case of such an event. What are your instructions? Rogers examined his wristwatch. To inform you that you have six hours to join us, or be blasted out of the universe. He got abruptly to his feet. I'm sorry this had to happen. Williamson's world is one of our most precious legends, but nothing must destroy the unity of the galaxy. Williamson had risen. His face was ash-white, the color of death. They faced each other defiantly. We'll fight, Williamson said quietly. His fingers knotted together violently, clenching and unclenching. That's unimportant. You've received relay coordinates on weapons development. You know what our war fleet has. The other people sat quietly at their places, staring rigidly down at their empty plates. No one moved. Is it necessary? Williamson said harshly. Cultural variation must be avoided if the galaxy is to have peace, Rogers replied firmly. You'd destroy us to avoid war? We'd destroy anything to avoid war. We can't permit our society to degenerate into bickering provinces, forever quarreling and fighting, like your clans. We're stable because we lack the very concept of variation. Uniformity must be preserved, and separation must be discouraged. The idea itself must remain unknown. Williamson was thoughtful. Do you think you can keep the idea unknown? There are so many semantic correlatives, hints, verbal leads. Even if you blast us, it may arise somewhere else. We'll take that chance. Rogers moved toward the door. I'll return to my ship and wait there. I suggest you take another vote. Maybe knowing how far we're prepared to go will change the results. I doubt it. Rogers Webb whispered suddenly. This is north at Relay. Rogers fingered the web in acknowledgement. A Class I battleship is in your area. A team has already been landed. Keep your ship grounded until it can fall back. I have ordered the team to lay out its fish-in-mine terminals. Rogers said nothing. His fingers tightened around the web convulsively. What's wrong? Williamson asked. Nothing. Rogers pushed the door open. I'm in a hurry to return to my ship. Let's go. Commander Ferris contacted Rogers as soon as his ship had left Williamson's world. North tells me you've already informed them, Ferris said. That's right. He also contacted your team directly, had it prepare the attack. So I'm informed. How much time did you offer them? Six hours. You think they'll give in? I don't know. Rogers said. I hope so, but I doubt it. Williamson's world turned slowly in the viewscreen with its green and blue forests, rivers, and oceans. Terra might have looked that way once. He could see the Class I battleship, a great silvery globe moving slowly in its orbit around the planet. The legendary world had been found and contacted. Now it would be destroyed. He had tried to prevent it, but without success. He couldn't prevent the inevitable. If Williamson's world refused to join the galactic culture, its destruction became a necessity, grim, axiomatic. It was either Williamson's world or the galaxy. To preserve the greater, the lesser had to be sacrificed. He made himself as comfortable as possible by the viewscreen and waited. At the end of six hours, a line of black dots rose from the planet and headed slowly toward the Class I battleship. He recognized them for what they were. 
old-fashioned jet-driven rocket ships, a formation of antiquated war vessels rising up to give battle. The planet had not changed its mind. It was going to fight. It was willing to be destroyed rather than give up its way of life. The black dots grew, swiftly larger, became roaring, blazing metal disks puffing awkwardly along. A pathetic sight. Rogers felt strangely moved, watching the jet-driven ships divide up for the contact. The Class I battleship had left its orbit and was swinging in a lazy, efficient arc. Its banks of energy tubes were slowly rising, lining up to meet the attack. Suddenly, the formation of ancient rocket ships dived. They rumbled over the Class I, firing jerkily. The Class I's tubes followed their path. They began to reform clumsily, gaining distance for a second try and another run. A tongue of colorless energy flicked out. The attackers vanished. Commander Ferris contacted Rogers. The poor, tragic fools. His heavy face was gray. Attacking us with those things. Any damage? None whatever. Ferris wiped his forehead shakily. No damage to me at all. What next? Rogers asked stonily. I've declined the mine operation and passed it back to Relay. They'll have to do it. The impulse should already be below them. The green and blue globe shuddered convulsively. Soundlessly, effortlessly, it flew apart. Fragments rose, bits of debris, and the planet dissolved in a cloud of white flame, a blazing mass of incandescent fire. For an instant, it remained a miniature sun, lighting up the void. Then it faded into ash. The screens of Roger's ship hummed into life as the debris struck. Particles rained against them and were instantly disintegrated. Well, Ferris said, it's over. North will report the original scout mistaken. Williamson's world wasn't found. The legend will remain a legend. Rogers continued to watch until the last bits of debris had ceased flying and only a vague, discolored shadow remained. The screens clicked off automatically. To his right, the Class I battleship picked up speed and headed toward the Riga system. Williamson's world was gone. The galactic relay culture had been preserved. The idea, the concept of a separate culture with its own ways, its own customs, had been disposed of in the most effective possible way. Good job, the relay trace web whispered. North was pleased. The fish and mines were perfectly placed. Nothing remains. No, Rogers agreed. Nothing remains. Corporal Pete Matson pushed the front door open, grinning from ear to ear. Hi, honey. Surprise. Pete! Gloria Matson came running throwing her arms around her husband. What are you doing home, Pete? Special leave. Forty-eight hours. Pete tossed down his suitcase triumphantly. Hi there, kid. His son greeted him shyly. Hello. Pete squatted down and opened his suitcase. How things been going? How's school? He's had another cold, Gloria said. He's almost over it. But what happened? Why did they... Military secret. Pete fumbled in his suitcase. Here. He held something out to his son. I brought you something. A souvenir. He handed his son a handmade wooden drinking cup. The boy took it shyly and turned it around, curious and puzzled. What's a, a souvenir? Matson struggled to express the difficult concept. Well, it's something that reminds you of a different place. Something you don't have where you are, you know. Matson tapped the cup. That's to drink out of. It's sure not like our plastic cups, is it? No, the child said. Look at this, Gloria. Pete shook out a great folded cloth from his suitcase, printed with multicolored designs. Pick this up cheap. You can make a skirt out of it. What do you say? 
Ever seen anything like it? No, Gloria said, awed. I haven't. She took the cloth and fingered it reverently. Pete Matson beamed as his wife and child stood clutching the souvenirs he had brought them, reminders of his excursions to distant places, foreign lands. Gee, his son whispered, turning the cup around and around. A strange light glowed in his eyes. Thanks a lot, Dad, for the souvenir. The strange light grew. In two days on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, neither Peter Horn nor his wife ever expected that their child would be a small blue pyramid of another dimension. The Shape of Things by Ray Bradbury. That's in just two days on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode.